I was talking to a lady over Christmas, visiting at a church, and I said, what role do you play in this church? So I just teach the first and second graders. I said, oh, I said, how many people are in your class? She said, well, I have five kids in there on Sunday morning. Five kids. I said, that's wonderful. Five kids whose lives you can impact, I thought to myself. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. As we wrap up our study of the book of Haggai today, we find the prophet beginning his fourth sermon on the same day that he delivered his third. Now, if you've been listening to our study in the book of Haggai, you know this Old Testament book is comprised of four sermons. The first two are on the subjects of priorities and discouragements, and the fourth is on the matter of perspective. But before we turn to that fourth message, Dr. Brogy wraps up his look at the third, which dealt with relationships. Carl begins by first looking at the book of James chapter four, and noting that a relationship with God is as important in a New Testament day as it was 500 BC. James, like Haggai, reminds the people that you cannot expect God to bless you unless you are living a life of obedience. If you disobey God, you're going to reap what you sow. Doesn't matter whether you're saved or lost. It is a basic law of God. Just as there are certain physical laws that govern the physical universe, I can fall out of a tree, break my arm, it doesn't matter if I'm saved or unsaved. That law of God does not exclude Christians. And so there are certain spiritual laws that govern your relationship with God. Notice what he says, James 4. He's talking here in prayer, verse 3. You ask and do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteress. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, he's not talking about friendship with the, with the people of the world. Jesus ate with the tax gatherers and sinners. He's talking about friendship with the world system, with the world's values, that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Let's suppose... There's a young lady living here in Beaufort, and she meets a fine young man, and she marries him. And there at the marriage altar, they exchange their vows, and she says, I take thee, John, to be my lawfully wedded husband. And on and on, she says, I will keep myself for you alone as long as we both shall live, so help me God. But after she makes that commitment, six months later, she becomes infatuated with Fred, and they fall into an adulterous relationship, and John knows it. And she comes to John and says, John, I have some needs in my life. Would you please give me some money? Bill and I are going to Atlanta this weekend. And by the way, would you mind letting me have the keys to the car? And oh, the credit cards too, I could use those. Do you think John is going to give her what she requests? Absolutely not. He is not going to underwrite her sin if he has half a brain. That is God's point to us here in the book of James. He says, you ask, you say, God bless me. God work in my life. God do in and through me what you want to do. And we're holding on to this over here in the world. And God says, you ask, 
but you ask with wrong motives. Don't you understand that, that to be in love with this world is spiritual adultery in the sight of God? That God doesn't honor that. So Haggai reminds the people of the same truth in his day. They were living in plush houses. I mean, they had paneling in their houses. That was expensive in that day. They had the best, but where's the work of the Lord? It's in disrepair. The temple laying there for 14 years, untouched, nothing happening in God's work. Notice what James says here in verse 6. But He, God, gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God honors humility. God honors a broken life. And the problem with the people in Haggai's day is they had become proud. Their priorities were all out of whack. They were no longer the humble people of God. But God promises that if you want to become holy experientially, He tells through James the same things He said through Haggai. Obey God. Humble yourselves in the sight of God because God gives grace not to the proud and the boastful, not to the arrogant and disobedient, but to the humble. Not long ago, I had a man who came to me and he said, Pastor, would you pray for me? I said, of course I will. What do you want me to pray for? He said, I have this tremendous problem with sexual lust. He said, I'd like you to pray for me with, about it. And I said, I am delighted to pray with you about that. He said, well, I was kind of embarrassed to come and tell you about it. He said, you know, it just I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to fall back into that sin. I said, that is so encouraging. That is so encouraging that you would come because you're afraid that you're going to fall back into that sin. Because I find the people who are running scared are the people who are going to keep the fathers away from the sin. It's the arrogant. It's the boastful. It's the person who said, that would never happen to me that is going to get blindsided by the devil. Paul says, we know the verse, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond with that which you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. But don't miss the verse before there. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand be careful lest he fall. When you or I get to the point in our life where we think, man, I, I've progressed spiritually. God is doing something in me. Man, I'm, I'm becoming a spiritual person. And we think we're above some kind of sin. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. God gives a greater grace. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. There are some Christians who will experience greater grace. We're not talking about saving grace. For if you've been saved, you've had the same experience I've had with Jesus Christ. We're talking about greater grace. We're talking about that grace that moves you down the road to holiness. Notice how he, what he says in James 4 and verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Same truth. And sandwiched between verses 6 and 10, he describes what a humble, holy person looks like. Notice, number one, he tells us to submit to God in verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Obey God. Do whatever He tells you to do. Notice what he says in verse uh, 7, number 2. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Have you ever thought about the devil fleeing from you? 
You know, for most of us, it's ridiculous to think of Satan running from us. We think the best we can do is just to stay him off for a little bit. But he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Notice he says, draw near to God, verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Guaranteed. If God doesn't seem as close to you as he once did, guess who moved? You must take the initiative. You must humble yourself before a holy, righteous God in prayer, in obedience to His Word, by feeding on the Word of God, by fellowshipping with His people. As you draw near to God, God promises He will draw near to you. And then He says, verse four, uh, um, number 4, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is saying you can't live a holy life with dirty hands. You can't live a holy life with a divided heart. You can't come to God facing both ways saying, God bless me over here while you're holding on to this area of your life that you know is disobedience and displeasing to God. God is not going to do it. He's not going to underwrite our spiritual adultery because friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Now that's the message that Haggai wants us to see. Let's go back and look at it. Haggai chapter 3, or chapter 2 once again, the third sermon. It's the same truth. And so he reminds the people, you can be contaminated by unholy behavior, whether it's your own or whatever. You can be contaminated by it. That holiness is a process that takes time. We're going to see how he argues that. Look at verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there, where there, there on the altar. Every work they offer there is unclean. Now he's looking back on their past behavior because he's going to contrast it with the day that they're in, December 24th, 520 BC. But he's reminding these people, they were very religious. They were involved in the sacrificial system. They were offering the animals there weekly, which, of course, prefigured the death of Jesus Christ. But while they were obeying God in this area of their life, they were living in rebellion in this area of their life. And God says, in essence, what you've offered on the altar of God has been contaminated. It's unclean. We can come to church all we want. We can sing the hymns and praise the Lord. But listen. If there's an area of your life that you are willfully holding against God, it displeases Him. I was talking to a man recently, and I said, look, you can come to church, you can raise your hands, you can praise the Lord all you want. But if you don't forgive your life, that is a mockery to God. You can do whatever you want to do. But God is not pleased by that kind of worship. God doesn't like double-mindedness. God wants an undivided heart. God wants you and I to experience His blessing. Jesus said, if you go and present your gift there at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, go first and be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering to the Lord. Your heart has to be right before God. And so, notice what he says here in verse 15. Follow the argument of the passage. But now... Do consider from this day onward before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord 
From that time, when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there'd be only 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50, there'd only be 20. I smote you. I did this. It was my wind. It was my mildew. It was my hail. Yet you didn't come back to me. God did it for 14 years over the disobedience of these people. But do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, considered. And he says, look back. And yet he says, from this day, I will bless you. Now it's interesting. Three months had transpired. Haggai the prophet came. He gave his first sermon. 22 days went by. The people said, we're going to obey the Lord. They start rebuilding the temple. He comes. He gives them another sermon. Encourages them along. God's going to supply. He's going to meet the needs that we have to do His work. Three months have now transpired from the day that they began the work on that temple. And God reminds them, from this day, December 24th on, you're going to see a change, a blessing in your life. You see, the, the wine vats were still low. The grain was still scarce. But God said to them, three months after they started obeying, from this day on, I'm going to bless you. Sometimes we get out of the will of God and God disciplines us. God deals with us. And we get our heart right with God and we just say, oh, everything's going to be rosy now from this day on. And sometimes God just keeps that hand of discipline on there. As a reminder, you see, we, 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 we're so fickle. We think, well, man, I just get right back in. God will bless me. I get out. God will unbless me. Get right back in. And God doesn't work that way. You don't work that way with your kids. No, you want to make sure that there's a truly a changed heart and attitude. And so three months go by. These people get right with God. And then God says, it's genuine. I'm going to bless you now from this day on. Now notice, let's keep reading. He says, from this day on, verse 19, I will bless you. Now, I want you to go back to the book of Joel for just a second. Turn back a few pages. You'll find Daniel, Hosea, and then right after Hosea, Joel. It's on this side of Psalms. Several little tiny books in there that you'd have to skip back over. Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Nahum, Micah, Jonah, Obadiah, and then you'll come to uh, Amos and then Joel. Notice Joel, if you will, same principle. Boy, this runs throughout Scripture. It's really neat, I think, it's to see how God does this. Joel, notice, if you will, chapter 1, in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. And let your sons tell their sons. And let their sons, the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. God did in Israel's day what He did in Haggai's day. He brought judgment. It was much more severe than in Haggai's day because the sin was so much more severe. It was a sin of idolatry. And so God says to His people, He reminds them, look at verse 5, Awake drunkards and weep and wail all you wine drinkers. Notice what He says in verse 8. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth. Notice verse 13. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Look at verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders. In other words, repent. 
Humble yourselves before God and repent. Now, the reason I'm reminding you of this is sometimes we've made some very foolish mistakes. Maybe before we were saved and we've trashed up our lives, our families, our kids for years, and we come to faith in Christ. Or we came to faith and we got out of fellowship with God and we made many foolish, foolish mistakes. But I want to tell you something about the nature of our God. Look at chapter 2 and verse 18. After the people repent, then the hand of the Lord will be zealous for His land and He will have pity on His people. Notice verse 25. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the nine locusts, my great army which I sent among you, and you shall have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. God still does that. God still can make up for the years that we have lost through disobedience and sins. Now go back to Haggai. That's the problem of relationship. Haggai reminds the people, you want God to honor your life? Live a holy life before me, and God will bless that. God will use you. God will honor holiness. Now finally, his fourth sermon. It deals with the problem of perspective. Notice verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying... And so he preached this sermon on the same day that he preached his a third sermon. You can write out there if you want, December 24th. So he preached it on the same day, so I'm going to too, all right? Verse 21, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. Now we saw in the second sermon he gave a word of prophecy as well. He talked about shaking the earth. And we saw that that was fulfilled, or it is begun to be fulfilled, but it will ultimately be fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes again. And once again, he takes the people into the future. He gives a prophetic word about what God has yet to do. Now, if you study this passage of Scripture, you might want to write out in the margin Zechariah chapters 12 and 14. Because remember, Zechariah, the contemporary prophet, preached the same thing. And Zechariah tells us that this will happen when Jesus Christ comes back again at the second coming of Jesus Christ. This prophecy that is here in Haggai, the fourth message, has never, ever been fulfilled. In fact, Revelation chapter 16 pinpoints this specific event with the horsemen and everything that will take place at the Battle of Armageddon. Now, why on earth did he tell Haggai the prophet to preach this message to Zerubbabel of something that's going to happen, who knows, whenever Jesus Christ comes back again? Because he wanted Zerubbabel to have a perspective on the work of the Lord. Now, God told Abraham a similar thing. And remember, in verse 23, he says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel only saw, found a partial fulfillment of this, just like Abraham found a partial fulfillment of what God told him. Let me read a passage to you. It's in Genesis chapter 12. God said to Abraham, And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, 
and I will make your name great. And he says, the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now you look at that and you say, well, Abraham, your nation wasn't all that great in your lifetime. But it was through his lineage. And God blessed all the nations of the world, though it was told to Abraham through his lineage because Jesus Christ ultimately came. Well, Zerubbabel, if you look in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12, you will find that he was in the lineage of Jesus Christ. He was one of the descendants through whom Mary and Joseph would come, through whom the Savior would come. And he says to him, though he experiences a partial fulfillment of this in his life, it will not ultimately be fulfilled until Jesus comes again. And what a perspective for Zerubbabel that God is controlling the nations of the world. That God is going to do what He said He's going to do and nothing is going to stop it. He says, I will make you like a signet ring for I have chosen you. Now what is a signet ring? Well, a signet ring was a ring that a king wore. It was a symbol of authority. And typically they would take it and they'd put it on a piece of wax to seal a document or to sign the king's name at the bottom of a letter. If this signet was on there, then it came with the authority of the king. And God says to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you a signet ring. I love to put my own name in this verse because the New Testament teaches that we're linked to the same thing. The one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, we have been commissioned by with his authority to go and to preach the world to the world. But you see, we suffer from the same problem that this man suffered from. And that's a lack of perspective. What's your problem and my problems many times in 1994? It's perspective. It's getting so wrapped up in the day-to-day details of life that we fail to see the big picture in the big God who's overseeing it all. Sometimes we think our lives are so insignificant. We reason to ourselves that that, you know, what I do is not that important. Nobody would miss me if I weren't here. We go to our jobs and we spend 8 and 10 and 12 hours a day there and we come home and we think, what's the big deal? I want you to do something. You take a piece of paper and you draw a 12-inch line on it. You make 12 slashes across it. And you let one of those slashes represent 20th century Western civilization. This represents civilization from beginning to end. You see, history, biblically, is not circular. We're not going and going and going and going nowhere. It's coming to an end. God is going to end human history as we know it. There's a distinct beginning. There's a distinct end. The evolutionists would say there is no beginning. He doesn't want you to think there was a beginning. Because he doesn't want you to think, because he doesn't want to think that he's accountable to God. And he doesn't want you to think that there's an end. But there is. There's a distinct beginning. God made the heavens and the earth. He's coming again. He's going to destroy the heavens and the earth. And He's going to judge the living and the dead. And you put a line there. Let that represent 20th century civilization. And you put on there a speck on that line. That might represent your life in 20th century civilization. What makes your life significant? Just a speck. Is it the property that you own? I remember sitting in one of the finest clubs in Dallas with a man who made half a million dollars a year. And he said, see that street right there? He said, that's my grandfather. It's named after him. He used to be the mayor of Dallas. 
Here was a new Christian, a month old in the Lord, but he said, I bet there's not one in 10,000 people that know he was the mayor of Dallas. He was getting a perspective. He was realizing that fame is not what made him what he was. My dad has been a successful ophthalmologist. I talked to him a few days ago. He, 70 years old. He said, I just finished my last surgery. Been operating since 1950. Prominent ophthalmologist. Just had a successful practice. Helped develop interocular lenses in the eyes and was a key leader in that whole process. I said, you know, Dad, uh, what are you going to do now that you're not operating? He said, well, I see a few patients still in the office. And I said, you know, I was speaking to someone down here in Beaufort, and they knew you. And they said, what a fine job you had done on their eyes, and, and that you were the best surgeon in the city of Worcester. He said, well, I said, I guess that's just kind of a fading memory. That won't be for long. They won't know me in a few years. You know, and now this man doesn't know Christ. But you know, his, his life has been wrapped up in his profession. His whole significance in what he has done with his life. And now he's coming to the end of his life. And what will make him a significant person? Only a relationship with Jesus Christ? What makes you a significant person today? Well, one, that God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you, but your life takes on significance if you know Christ, that you are not just some number in a depersonalized society, but that you serve a God who oversees the universe, who started it, who's going to end it, and you have a part in His plan. You are God's signet ring. He has a purpose for you and for you and for you. I was talking to a lady over Christmas, visiting at a church, and I said, what role do you play in this church? So I just teach the first and second graders. I said, oh, I said, how many people are in your class? She said, well, I have five kids in there on Sunday morning. Five kids. I said, that's wonderful. Five kids whose lives you can impact, I thought to myself. Five kids who would become five fathers, maybe five husbands, five leaders for Jesus Christ. You see, we think our life is insignificant and no one may ever know you. You may never acquire much, but in God's economy, you are a significant person when you understand the perspective. So Haggai the prophet says to Zerubbabel, you're my signet ring. I have given you authority to be my man, to do my work. And yet Zerubbabel never saw what God promised. But you see, he was part of God's working in human history. And so are you and I. Now I want you to think this morning. We've studied this book, Four Little Sermons. I want you, easy to lose this book, just at a few stuck pages. But do you have some of the problems that these people had in their day? The problem of priority. That's his first sermon. The problem of discouragement. That's the second sermon. The problem of relationship. We need to live holy. That's his third sermon. And the problem of perspective. Maybe you ought to go home and read through this book again. It is just as fresh as the day God wrote it. And it's for you and for me. Truly, God has the ability to pack four incredible messages in a book as small as Haggai. If you'd like a copy of today's message in its entirety, 
Call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program HAG3. And please remember we are a listener-supported ministry. If you can help offset some of the expenses associated with these programs, we'd love to hear from you. You can send your tax-deductible contribution to Search the Scriptures, P.O. Box 600, Seabrook, South Carolina, 29940, or give online at searchthescriptures.org. Thank you, and God bless you. Tomorrow, Dr. Berge begins a new study in the Book of Romans. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.